The reading this morning is taken from Judges, uh, chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abiathrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favour in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until your return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock. (coughs) consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realised that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abias rites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, Who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. 
the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. (coughs) Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and capped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is the word of the Lord. So I started looking at this on Monday, and I planned this series before Christmas, but the detail of each sermon, I have to confess, only comes at the beginning of the week. And I saw the title, Gideon, When We Feel Inadequate. I thought, great. I know exactly what I'm going to talk about, because I feel inadequate most of the time, if not all of the time. And I thought about all the ways in which I feel inadequate. And then I realized... I think it was God's prompt speaking to me saying, what you are thinking of as inadequacy is not inadequacy. You are comparing yourself unfavorably with others. And that is not the same thing. We reuse that phrase a lot, oh, I feel so inadequate. We walk into a room where everybody seems to be better at something than us and we say we feel so inadequate. That is comparing ourselves unfavorably to others. And what Gideon shows us is what inadequacy truly is. Being inadequate is when we literally do not have the resources to do the task in front of us. It might still make us feel the same sort of, oh my goodness. But it's not comparing ourselves with others who have done different things, who are gifted in different ways and feeling, oh, if only I could be like them. Inadequacy is when we literally do not have the resources for the task in front of us. And in Christian life, when we have to turn to God. And this is the story of Gideon. So I want just to put into context where Gideon fits in the Bible. 
You'll see quite near the beginning of the Old Testament, and I've told you before that the Old Testament isn't chronological, but Judges does sit chronologically. So we've had the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And over that period of time, we have leaders, patriarchs of God's people. We've had Abraham. We looked at Jacob last week. We've had Moses. We've had, after um, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So God's people were organized under leaders that God raised up. And then came a period of time when God didn't raise up leaders in quite the same way. This is between the patriarchs and the kings. There's no monarchy yet for God's people. We're in this in-between time when there doesn't appear to be anybody ruling over God's people, leading them, guiding them, whatever language you want to use. But during this time, God raised up men and women who were able to be God's spokespeople, who brought a message from God and who could speak wisdom and reality into different situations. And they were called the Judges, hence the book of Judges. And Gideon is one such person. He is one of the people that God chose to speak out, to bring God's message and to talk to them um, about what God was saying. And it's in the context of life being difficult for God's people. If we looked at verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The problem of the Old Testament is this sense of God's people moving away from God and then being drawn back towards him, moving away from him, as we do in our life, which is why we come to confession every week. It's the pattern of every single person. Times of closeness, times of moving away. And those times of moving away meant that the land was in turmoil and there was threat from outside. And the threat at the moment is the Midianites. And the Midianites are a mighty force who are a real threat and danger to God's people. Not an imagined threat, a real threat. And the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And where is Gideon at this point? He's threshing wheat in a wine press because he's hiding from the Midianites. We read verses 2 to 5. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive. If you want to have it open, it's 248. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. This is the reality of life at this time. So Gideon has some wheat, but he wants to keep it. And so he's hiding in a wine press so that he's not seen. And in that place of danger, of refuge, the angel of the Lord appears to him and challenges Gideon. Go and save Israel from Midian. Now you can imagine what Gideon might be feeling. Hiding in his winepress, the angel of the Lord saying, God is asking you to go and to save his people from this mighty force. Gideon's first response in verse 15, my clan is the weakest 
and I am the least in my family. How on earth can I do that? That is not false modesty. That is reality. If you are looking for someone to challenge the Midianites, you choose the strongest clan. And you choose the strongest person in that clan to have a chance to stand up against this mighty force. You don't go to the weakest clan and the least member of the family in that and say, it's your job. It's your job to go and challenge this mighty force that is wiping out God's people. And yet this is what the angel of the Lord coming from God, is doing. So Gideon must be quaking in his shoes at this point. But as God's people that he raises up, we see in him something that makes him say yes. And he carries out the first task that is asked of him. He breaks down Baal's altar and cuts down the pole. But in verse 27, we see that he does this at night because he fears the retribution of the people around him, who will be terrified, not just the the fear of the Midianites, but now of his own people, who when they see what has happened, will be furious with them because of the risk. And so he does it at night. Again, this is genuine danger. This is a man who's at risk. Uh, He's at risk of his life. And yet he carries out the task. And now, of course, the threat from Midian is even greater. They are livid. And they raise more and more people to come against Israel. And Gideon knows the task in front of him, but he needs reassurance. And this is where we have the passage about putting out the fleece. And if you've been in Christian circles a long time, you no doubt debated whether it's right to put out a fleece for God. Is it right to seek guidance from God in this way of testing him? The commentary I was reading was saying that it's not so much a test, it's about reassurance. And God hears Gideon's need for reassurance. And he accommodates his doubts, not once, but twice. Gideon needs to know that what he has heard is of God. How many times do we doubt, is that really of God? And because he's genuinely at risk, he needs to know, and God knows that he needs to know. And so that putting out the fleece and seeing whether it's wet or whether it's dry is about reassurance, Lord, I will do this. But I need to know I've heard correctly. I need to know that you are truly asking this of me. Because I can't do it. I am inadequate. And I can only do this if it is of your will. And God accommodates his doubts and shows him it is the way. So, if we were to carry on, we discover that Gideon then gathers Israelites around him. The army is amassing on the outsides of their camps and Gideon gets his people together and and gathers together as many as he can. And God speaks to him. You've got too many. You've got too many, Gideon. Not a great battle cry. You've got too many. And I'll show you how we can reduce this number, Gideon. You ask them who is fearful. And any who are fearful are allowed to turn back. So Gideon does as God asks and says, okay guys, but this mighty army around us, these people who've been destroying our land and destroying our people, we're fighting against them, we're about to go into battle with them. Who's feeling afraid? And 22,000 said yes, and they left. 
leaving 10,000. Not much of an army. Gideon gets his 10,000, and God says, you've still got too many. And again, give you another test. Send your armies down to the water and watch how they drink. Those who um, kneel down to drink, send back. Those who crouch and lap the water with their hands, keep. And I guess that's about who's still being alert as they're drinking the water. Only 300 crouched down and lap water with their hands. And God said, that's your army. Talk about inadequate. Truly inadequate. An army of 300 against this mighty force. So God says, right, got the plan. Here's what you're going to do. Here is how you are going to defeat this mighty force that has come around you. You're going to split into three groups. 300 people, 100 in each group. And you're going to surround the camp. And we're going to give you some weapons. Trumpets and empty jars with torches in them. Not much of battle equipment either. And Gideon, when you blow the trumpet, everyone else is to blow their trumpet, break their jar, and shine their torch. But they do it. The trumpet blows. Everybody blows their trumpets. They smash their jars and they flash their torches up in the sky and the Midianites flee. Only God can do that. Because what they have done is inadequate. Truly, what they have done could not have resulted in the Midianites fleeing. Only God could do that. You can imagine by this time the Israelites think Gideon is the best thing they've ever seen. So they ask him to rule over the land in chapter 8. And Gideon says uh, this, verses 22 and 23, Rule over us, because you've saved us out of the hands of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And what Gideon shows us is what it means to know that God is at work and that we are simply his instruments. Gideon was not the ruler. All he had done was take his inadequacy and not let that be a barrier to what God wanted to do through him. That did not make him somebody with acclamation and fame. It made him somebody who knew the rule and the sovereignty of the Lord. And for 40 years, there was peace amongst the people of Israel. Gideon, a man who would not allow inadequacy to stop him doing all that God was asking of him. His strength must have grown tremendously, but also his reliance on God. He was able to step out into the unknown with no tools in his box, no weapons in his armory, no ability to argue at a political level. But he stepped out inadequately because God had asked him and because he trusted in God. 
And what we learn from him is that it's good. It is good to be inadequate. Where do we hear that in our world? It is good to be inadequate. So that got me thinking. It's a wonderful story of Gideon. But what does inadequacy look like in our world today? I've got three photographs, Nick, if we could have the first one up. So if you remember this, Tiananmen Square in 1989, and the tanks were coming in, and suddenly they see a man with two shopping bags go and stand in front of the tank. That's inadequacy. Did he stand a chance of stopping the tanks in his strength? No. But there was a power, a power beyond anything that being equipped to fully challenge would have given him. The bravery, the commitment, the dedication, the single-mindedness that took this man to walk out, whether he'd just been to the shops and just thought, I can't have this anymore, I've had enough. And he went and stood in front of the tanks and the whole world watched in amazement. There is a power in that. Here's another example of inadequacy. This is the first picture of Diana touching a man suffering from AIDS. At the time, the fear and trepidation of AIDS was huge. The adverts on television, the big rock that was coming out, and we lived in fear and trepidation. And we would not want to go anybody near an AIDS victim. Diana couldn't change that perception through debate, through challenging laws. She was inadequate in a good way. That wasn't her role. That wasn't, she wasn't a politician. But what she did was she visited... And even without wearing gloves, which is what everybody said, I guess the Queen usually wears gloves when she shakes hands. But ungloved, she reached out and held a hand. That's all she could do. And yet the power of that picture in changing a culture. In her inadequacy, there was power and there was strength. And my final picture. This is Reverend Andrew White the vicar of Baghdad, who developed multiple sclerosis as a Church of England vicar. And it was suggested to him that his illness meant that he couldn't really function as a Church of England cleric. So he went to Baghdad instead. And in his inadequacy, he has spoken out and helped us understand the reality of what is going on in the Middle East. Too dangerous for him to be in Iraq now. And he's not there now, but he's still continuing a work of reconciliation and being a spokesperson. But by himself, we look on him and think he's a hero because we've seen the outcome. But when he stepped on that plane and headed off to Iraq, there was no stories to tell, there was no testimonies. He was an inadequate man. He couldn't even do the job God had called him to do in the UK. And in his weakness did what he felt God was asking him to do. And in his inadequacy, there is power and strength. And that really inspired me, just thinking about these situations of being inadequate with God and the power and the strength that comes from that. 
And it made me wonder, why do I not embrace inadequacy? If I see that and marvel at that and think, if only, what stops me from embracing inadequacy? It's because it's terrifying. And because it's not comfortable. And it's wonderful when we get to the end and we hear the stories on the big stage. And yes, the Lord was good. But it might not be like that. Because there could probably be another 20 pictures I could put up of people who are inadequate. And there hasn't been those outcomes. There's no guarantees. But I do know that if we are able to embrace inadequacy, (coughs) it stops us feeling that we have to do it. And allows God to do it. And I wish I could do that more and more and more. And I thought back in my own life and thought, when have I seen that? When have I been part of a situation of inadequacy? And I remembered being in a church in Edinburgh that was a church plant. And it was a very new congregation, moved into a church building. The church was um, going to die. There was 20 people left in the congregation. And when the vicar moved in, it was filled with newspapers because the only way they could make money was to sell newspapers back as, as um, waste paper. Can't do that anymore. We recycle. But in those days, you were selling them back for pulp, I think it was. And there were no people, but there was just newspapers everywhere. And the church, a Victorian beautiful church, was falling down. And 40 people came from this other church to plant a congregation and others joined and I moved in about 18 months after it had started and it was an incredibly exciting time to be part of a church that's where I met my husband as well it was an exciting place because we were totally reliant on God because we had big dreams huge dreams of what God was asking of that congregation and the thing I remember that I just want to talk to you about lots and lots of things I remember but the thing I remember about relying on God was about money because we needed to do work to the building it was a listed building and you have to do work to it and every year for about five years we had um, we had two gift days a year one was for the church building and the other was for our overseas mission partners and we'd have the talks we'd have the half nights of prayer and I remember um, at the, right, the second year I was there, there was a vast project that we had to... It was much more expensive than we would have wanted to spend, but um, Historic Scotland was insisting on particular ways of doing the work. And it was, it was huge. And we knew that the congregation did not have the resource for this. It wasn't that they wouldn't spend it. I remember another vicar used to preach... Um, I know you've got the money, God knows you've got the money, you've just got to give it to us. This wasn't that situation. The people did not have the money. And we prayed all night, and we had a gift day, and the money came in more than we required, miraculously. And then two weeks later, a grant came in to match it. So we were actually then able to use that for the next piece of work. It was so exciting to be part of trusting God in our inadequacy that our expectations of the results of these gift days were amazing and it was so brilliant to be part of it because we had to rely on God to release in a miraculous way the money that if we counted up what people had in their bank accounts wouldn't have made up the same. I can't explain how it happened but I know it did because I was part of it and I loved being part of that sense of come on God 
we're trusting you. We will step out and we'll commit to this work because we believe you. Not in a foolhardy way, but in a sense of embracing inadequacy and saying it's over to you, God. It is over to you. I wish we could live like that more and more and more. You're on the edge of your seat. I was young. Maybe it's easier when you're young. But why don't we want to live like that all the time? Come on, God. It's easy when we can do it ourselves. It is easy. But when we have to rely on God, oh my goodness me, the power of knowing that God is at work is phenomenal and it spreads out into everything because if you trust him for that, well, my goodness me, you're going to trust him for the next thing, aren't you? Now, I know it doesn't always happen. So the cynics will come to me afterwards and say, yes, but I did this and it didn't happen. But I have experienced God at work, embracing inadequacy, trusting in God and seeing him in power. I thought that's a great story. What about in my own life? And I woke up early this morning thinking I still haven't thought of an example. When have I embraced inadequacy and let God work in me? And what he reminded of me this morning was this. That the vast majority of pastoral situations that I encounter, I am inadequate. There is no doubt about it. I cannot do anything to change those pastoral situations. And if I let that stop me, I would never have pastoral encounters. Because there's nothing worse than sitting with somebody knowing there is nothing you can do. The pain it causes me is phenomenal. And yet I encounter them time and time again. And I realized, as I thought this morning, why is it that I can do that? Because from early days, God has shown me that I don't have to have the answers. All I have to do is to be there. Sometimes never to say anything at all. But if I embrace my inadequacy and feel, I will still be there, even though I'm squirming inside and feeling incredibly uncomfortable and I will go home and cry my eyes out. Still, I will do it. And I remember to one of my first jobs when I was working in a mental illness hospital just outside Edinburgh. And it was the days of having a cleaning lady who'd come in and empty your bin. And she was a poor soul. She really was. And she would chat to me. And as the weeks and the months went on, the chat would come more and more and she'd tell me about all the problems she was having at home turned out there was domestic abuse at home. I think I was 23 at the time. Single. Didn't know what marriage was about. And here she was pouring out all this catalogue of woes as I was trying to work. She ended up pulling up a chair after a while. And I listened to her and I accepted her for who she was. And for most of the time I gave no response at all. And occasionally I find words that I don't know where they came from, from God. But I was able to speak into her situation when I had no experience. I had no experience of marriage, let alone domestic abuse. But I found because I was willing to sit and hold the pain, often that was enough in itself, but then God gave me words. And another experience, again, in a Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, where my office mate um, was expecting her second baby and had test results which showed that the baby might have Down syndrome and was asking me about all the ethics of it. Again, you know, 23, when you're not married, you haven't had children. I was completely inadequate. But again, sitting and listening and holding pain, God gives you words and wisdom 
when you open yourself out to him. And I thought this morning, I thought that was the basis. Because I experienced that, that's carried through. I sometimes come home to Paul and say, I don't know why people tell me all the things they tell me. Because I hear a lot. And it is agonizing at times. But I have been able to embrace inadequacy. That in every pastoral situation I am in, I am inadequate. But I create a space where God can come. And he comes. And what I also realize now is that because I do feel inadequate and embrace it, he guides me and leads me. So someone told me recently, I turned up at a house and the person said to me afterwards, you'll never believe it, the timing of you coming was so godly. It was remarkable. And I had been at home thinking, I can't possibly go because I've nothing to say. But I had the urge in my stomach. And my head was saying, I can't go because I don't know what to say. And my heart and my stomach were saying, you just have to go. And I was shaking as I went. And I knocked on the door and went in. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. But I have to embrace inadequacy to do that. And it's hard. It's difficult. It takes me out of my comfort zone. And I don't say that to say, you know, write a book about me and put it in the Bible and, you know, the story of Debbie who was inadequate and did the pastoral situations. I'm only telling you this because I want to share with you why I think it's so important. Because I think we're creating a culture where we only do what we feel able to do. When we feel we've got a chance of making it work. And I think in this part of the world, even more so. Success is all that matters. And we run from inadequacy. And unless we become a church that embraces inadequacy, we will never see God at work in our lives. And when we have to fall on our knees because we have not got the money, and we cry out to him and we say, this will only work if miraculously you provide it, we know what it means to have God as Lord in our lives. When we fall on our knees in not understanding why a certain thing has happened, and as a church we grieve and we cry and say, Lord, heal us. Then we know who he is in our lives. And I just have felt this so strongly this week, and there's been various things I've gone to where I've felt this more and more, and it's just been um, confirmed to me that I think God is setting us a challenge that we move from places of comfort to places of feeling scared, of stepping out into the unknown, of being willing to be inadequate in all that that means. And you probably look at me and think, she never is inadequate, but you don't know what goes on inside. You don't know what happens when I close the door. And I am inadequate a lot of the time because I have not, and that's not false modesty, that is not me comparing myself with other people. That is me knowing I have not got the resource. And I have to fall on my knees and say, Lord, if you want me to do this, only you can do it in me. And the reason I couldn't remember was because I think more and more I've done it and it becomes the norm. The first time's the hardest. But as we do it, isn't God good? It shapes who we are and it becomes second nature to be that person. And I long for that to be more and more in my life, that I won't even doubt it. 
but I have experienced what it means to totally rely on God and to let that shape me and move me forward and not to not do things because of it. It's so easy to say so far, but no, not beyond that. And when we push beyond that, that is when God comes in power in our individual lives and in lives of us as a church. Bring it on.